Last week we spoke about mindfulness of the body postures. The Buddha taught when walking, one knows one is walking. When standing, one knows I'm standing. When sitting, one knows I am sitting. When lying down, one knows I am lying down. Or one knows accordingly, however one's body is disposed. So we just explored the different ways that mindfulness of body posture, the simplicity of knowing body posture, actually leads us to awakening. So this awareness leads very naturally into the next section of the Satipatthana Sutta, which emphasizes the clear knowing of bodily activities. I'd like to read and this is from from the sutta. Furthermore, monks, when going forward and returning, he acts clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, he acts clearly knowing. When flexing and extending his limbs, he acts clearly knowing. When wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, he acts clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, he acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, he acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent, he acts clearly knowing. I think the message is clear. (laughs) But what does this clearly knowing mean? Clearly knowing, or sometimes it's translated as clear comprehension, is the translation of the Pali word sampajano. And this Pali word means seeing precisely or seeing thoroughly when all of the five spiritual faculties are in balance. So there are four ways of training in this clear comprehension. And you'll see as we go through them that it really provides a very large context of understanding our practice. These are four ways of training in sampajano, of clear comprehension, which is a quality that the Buddha spoke of so frequently in the suttas comes up again and again. In some way, we can see this quality of clearly knowing as the foundation of our entire practice. So the first way of training in clear comprehension is clearly knowing the purpose of doing an action and discerning whether or not it is of benefit, either to ourselves or others. So this takes the meditation a step further than simply knowing the bodily posture. Here we need to look at and reflect on our motivation for doing something. Is it skillful? Is it unskillful? And practicing this has tremendous implications for how we live our lives in the world. 
if we cultivate this ability to see clearly, to clearly comprehend our motive for doing various actions, it opens up the possibility of great discernment. It's essential to train in this because our motivations, both in our actions here on retreat and in our daily lives, our motivations are often very subtle. They're not always very easy to see. Sometimes we have mixed motives for doing things. Or sometimes we have a series of conflicting motives in our minds. It really takes a lot of honesty and it takes a lot of clarity and mindfulness to see them clearly, to know what our inner purpose behind an action is. I'll just share one story with you, just illustrating the subtlety of motives. This is years ago when I was practicing in India. As many of you know, there are a lot of uh, beggars in India, and especially where never a Westerner is around, the beggars will come up. And so once I was in Bodh Gaya, where I was practicing, and just in the bazaar buying some fruit, and this little beggar boy came up, you know, and he held out his hand, and just in a moment, you know, the thought came, well, just you know, give him something. So I gave him one of the oranges I'd just gotten. And it was all very spontaneous and fine. But then what happened was really surprising to me. Because when I gave him the orange, he just walked away. There was not any acknowledgement at all. There wasn't a nod, there wasn't a smile, there was nothing. Gave him the orange, he walked away. And in that moment, it kind of illuminated for me that somewhere in my mind... I was just expecting something. I mean, I wasn't expecting profusive thanks for the orange, but just something, some acknowledgement. And that was something that I had been completely unaware of. You know, that there was that mix of motive. Uh, So this is a very small incident, but it just points to how often you know, we can have different motivations in our mind unless we're really watching carefully or looking carefully. We may not be seeing them all. It takes, it takes a uh, very strong mindfulness to see. Clear comprehension of the motivation is a great ally in our daily encounters with Mara. Now, as you know, Mara in Buddhism is the embodiment of delusion, the embodiment of ignorance. But it has a very different role in Buddhism than the devil or Satan has in Western religions. You know, where often the devil or Satan is seen as the, the lord of the underworld. In Buddhism, Mara is seen to be king of the Devas. So it's a very different, different, very different viewpoint. And what is this king of the Devas, Mara, trying to do? He wants to keep us all ensnared in his realm of samsaric attachments. 
Right? He wants us all in his domain, you know, king of sense pleasures. And so Mara, and again, this is the embodiment, the personification of delusion or ignorance in the mind. Mara uses many seductive and confusing ploys to keep us entangled, to keep us ensnared. Often mind states that are really hindrances, unskillful mind states, come masquerading as friends, come masquerading as skillful states. So for an example, very often in our practice especially, but it has its application in the world as well, sloth and torpor comes masquerading as compassion. You know, we might be feeling tired or we might be feeling frustrated or low energy. And then this very kindly voice starts arising in the mind. Oh, let me take some rest. I've been working really hard. I should kind of just lie down. I've done enough. You know, and so the voice sounds very compassionate. Of course, sometimes... We actually do need rest. So it's not to say that that's never a true voice, because sometimes it is. But we want to discern when it's actually reflecting some truth of the situation, and when it's simply pointing to that aspect of sloth and torpor, which manifests as retreating from difficulties. Because sloth and torpor doesn't, doesn't only mean sleepiness. It's that attitude of retreating from difficulties. So we want to see the difference between real compassion and compassion and kindness for ourselves and when that's just the mask and it's really sloth and torpor at work. In the same way, Mara seduces us when doubt comes masquerading as wisdom. You know, we often have these very wise-sounding voices in our minds. This isn't the right time for me to be practicing. You know, I've come back next year. Or, this isn't exactly the right practice for me. I should be doing Sufi dancing or whatever. It's voices in the mind that really speak to us with this tremendously wise tone, but really it's just doubt. It's just that quality of the mind that brings us to a standstill, that keeps us from moving forward. Or Mara might manifest not in this way of unskillful states masquerading as skillful ones. Sometimes it's just the simple blatant enticement of greed and desire in the mind. And we get pulled into it, we become identified with it. Now often we can see this around food. We have so much conditioning around food. And this is just one example, of course, of many. I remember once on retreat, up at the retreat center, I I was on retreat and going through the lunch line 
and they had one of the dishes that they served, uh, which I really liked. It was some kind of sesame, sesame spinach. But there was the sign, which sometimes appears. I don't know if it appears here. It appears up there a lot. Uh, moderation, please. You know, so I'm going through the line, and I see, oh, yeah, this is a dish I really like. And so as I get it, I'm reaching for the food. The, the thought in my mind is, I wonder how much I can take and it still be moderate. <laughs> yeah, so I just kind of pushed the limit of what I thought I could get away with. And then a minute later, you know, just as I'm passing by, of course I felt completely guilty <laughs> and wondering whether other people behind me would have enough you know, in the whole meal, I was just thinking about it. But it was just that moment, you know, of desire capturing the mind. And we get pulled into it. I found it helpful in my practice at times to use a phrase that is found often in the suttas. Both, it's a phrase the Buddha uses and also many of the nuns and monks, when they're seeing these manifestations of Mara arise, the phrase is, Mara, I see you. You And so there's that acknowledgement, oh yes, I see you, I see what you're up to. And for me, the personification of that unskillful state as Mara, it kind of injects a little humor, it injects a little lightness, but also a kind of strength of recognition. Oh, yes, I see what the mind is up to. And so it can be a helpful kind of note. It's a way of disentangling from unskillful states. So this aspect of clear comprehension, that is seeing both the purpose of our actions and whether or not they're of benefit, it rests on a very basic understanding of the ethical dimension of the Buddha's teachings. That is the discernment of what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. So this is a very key foundation of what we're undertaking. It's the discernment of what is skillful and what is unskillful which lead respectively to happiness and to unhappiness. There's a Tibetan prayer which says, may you have happiness and the causes of happiness. May you be free of suffering and of the causes of suffering. So this is a very important an important piece of wisdom contained in that. It's impossible to have happiness if we don't have the causes for happiness. And it's useless to wish to be free of suffering unless we free ourselves from the causes of suffering. And this is precisely where clear comprehension comes in. Clear comprehension in this whole section of the Satipatthana Sutta helps us begin to actualize that prayer in our lives. Clearly knowing our actions, clear comprehension of our motivations, 
opens up the possibility for us of making wise choices in our lives. Where is this action leading? Do I want to go there? It's like we actually stop and reflect a bit. Thich Nhat Hanh, he had a wonderful little phrase. He said, Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. Happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it. Happiness is available when we have, when we cultivate, when we strengthen clear comprehension. We see the motivation behind the action. We see whether it's of benefit to us or to others or not. Although it's not explicit in this sutta, reflection on motivation also opens the door to the practice of bodhicitta. That is the motivation and the understanding that we are not practicing for ourselves alone. But we can practice with the motivation that it be for the welfare and the benefit of all. And although mostly the teachings of bodhicitta were developed extensively in the later schools of Buddhism, we find this same attitude of altruistic motivation throughout the Pali texts as well. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago how the Buddha would reflect as he sat down, as he, as he took his seat in meditation. He sits with his mind set on his own welfare, the welfare of others, and on the welfare of both, even on the welfare of the whole world. So we sit down, settling into that motivation, practicing for our own welfare, for the welfare of others, even for the welfare of the whole world. Right at the beginning of his teaching, when there were the first 60 disciples who had become arhants, he sent them out to teach, and he sent them out with this uh, instruction. He said, Go forth, O bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good benefit and happiness of people and devas. Work for the good of others, you who have done your duties. You know, and so this, this attitude of what has become called bodhicitta is there right from the beginning. And again, it's clear comprehension of motivation which enables us to connect with that motivation in ourselves. I found it helpful in periods of retreat, and this is just a suggestion to consider, to begin each day or begin each sitting with an expression of this aspiration. May my practice be for the welfare of all. Or may my heart be purified of defilements for the benefit of all. 
or may I be quickly liberated for the benefit of all. You know, whatever words really resonate with you, but just a statement of your highest value in practice, and then a dedication of merit at the end of a sitting, at the end of a day. And may the merit of my practice be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. I think it's helpful to re-articulate often this aspiration, this motivation, if it is, if it is one that you hold. It's like watering the seed of something that's very precious. So the first training in clear comprehension is seeing the purpose, the motivation behind our action, and whether or not it's of benefit to ourselves or others. The second training in clear comprehension is knowing the suitability of an action. Because even when something is wholesome, we need to look further to see if it's the appropriate time to do it. And the Buddha highlighted this aspect often in his guidelines for right speech, you know, which could be condensed into just two, two guidelines. So we should say that which is true and that which is useful. So something could be true, and at a particular time it might not be useful to say. So clear comprehension keys us into that. Well, we might see that here on retreat, you know, slowing down and paying meticulous attention is a skillful thing to do. You know, that it deepens concentration, it enhances mindfulness. And yet when you're on the lunch line, you know, or 10 or 15 people behind you, it may not be the suitable time to be practicing microscopic movement. We need to see things in context. On my first retreat with Saida Upandita when he came, this was back in 84, uh, it was a, quite, a, quite an intense retreat. Uh, we were all on eight precepts. And then somewhere in the middle of the retreat, somebody with very good intentions delivered at my doorstep just before lunch this big Indian chicken dinner. So it was clearly they had my best interests at heart. But I opened the door to go down for lunch and I saw this thing. I didn't know what to do with it. You know, because I thought, I can't bring this into the dining room. <laughs> you know, I'm eating my chicken dinner while everyone else is having tofu. <laughs> and so it just created all this hubbub in my mind. Well, what do I do with it? And I don't want to throw it out, and I didn't want to eat it in my room. And so even though it was, it was an act motivated by generosity, you know, it was a wholesome motivation, it really wasn't suitable. <laughs> because, and for me, it just created a lot of distraction in my mind. So clearly knowing the suitability of an action helps us put our activities into a larger context, one which takes into account 
the effect of our actions on others. So the first step is seeing the motivation, but then we have to take it that step further. What's going to be the effect of this in a particular situation? And also understanding the suitability in terms of just the larger social or community context. And seeing suitability here from the other side can help us not get caught up in acting out of a spiritual image. Just as an example, when I first was studying in Bodh Gaya with Manindraji, my first teacher, he was a very unique personality. And his persona was not, you know, this great guru-type being. He was, in a way, very uh, ordinary. And that was uh, actually a manifestation of his great understanding and wisdom. Well, one time, he was always always reminding us in our practice to be simple and easy. Just be simple and easy about things. Which is very good advice, which I would like to pass on to you. Just be simple and easy about what's arising. Well, one day we were in the bazaar, the marketplace, and there's Manindraji going around from peanut vendor to peanut vendor, bargaining with them, like for five cents worth of peanuts, bargaining vigorously. And so I said to Manindraji, I thought you said to be simple and easy about things. And he said, I said to be simple, not a simpleton. You know, and for him, it, that social context, that bargaining is exactly what you did. That's what's appropriate. That's what was suitable. Whereas I had kind of the spirit, spiritual self-image. Oh, no, that's, you, know, you don't really do that if you're a great Dharma teacher. So really understanding what we do, not only in its effect on others, but in the suitability, the appropriateness of that action in the particular context, the social context in which it happens. So the first way of training in clear comprehension is understanding the purpose, the motivation, and whether it's of benefit. The second training is in the suitability of the action. The third training in clear comprehension is knowing the proper domain for one who is meditating. And the Buddha spoke of the four satipatthanas, that is the body, feelings, mind, and dhammas, mind objects, as the proper domain, or the word he uses in Pali is gotara, or pastures. These are the proper pastures for the mind to be in as we practice. When we understand this aspect of clear comprehension, it keeps us on track. It keeps us from getting distracted. There's a story of one monk who, every time he did something unmindfully, Every time he acted unmindfully, he would go back 
and do that action again. You know, so if like took five steps unmindfully, he would go back and take those same five steps again and being mindful. It's said that he practiced this way for 20 years and then he became an arhant, as all these happy stories go. I like this story for two reasons. One is, I like it because I think it's an interesting exercise to do. You know, and you might experiment a little bit, if not for 20 years, <laughs> at least for some time. You know, just as an experiment, see what happens. If every time you do something unmindfully, you go back, you retrace it and do it again. To see whether it actually does enhance the quality of your attention, the quality of your mindfulness. I also like the story, and I think it's particularly appropriate for us in the West, because it speaks to the importance of a dedicated commitment to awakening, what the Chinese Zen master Su Yun called the long enduring mind. And Su Yun himself, it said he practiced until he was 80, and then he taught for the next 40 years. He died at the age 120. That's a long enduring mind with respect to understanding this commitment to awakening. There's a great power and inspiration and great patience when we realize that this transformation of consciousness that we're undertaking, the purification of these deep-seated, deep-rooted tendencies in all of our hearts and minds, that this process of transformation is not a quick process. I mean, we may have very deep and sudden insights, which certainly happen in practice, but we're on a long path if we really are holding awakening or liberation as our aspiration. And that's what this monk, just, just that particular story, as many others, you know, and he practiced this for 20 years. He practiced with that kind of dedication to mindfulness. So there's great fruit which is possible from that kind of commitment. This aspect of clear comprehension, that is staying in the proper domain, staying in our proper pasture, points to the importance of self, of sense restraint. You know, and the Buddha talked a lot about guarding the senses, guarding the sense doors. But this is not something that is highly valued in our culture. You know, we don't grow up with a lot of messages to value sense restraint. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, there are all these messages we get, do all this to increase your desire, <laughs> fulfill all your desires. 
Now, often we see renunciation really as being quite burdensome. It's something we think might be good for us, but we don't really like it. You know, we undertake it with the sense of it being a burden. But there's another way of framing self-restraint, sense-restraint. And that would be to see it as non-addiction. We see that that's really what we're practicing. We're practicing non-addiction. Then in the very moment of practicing it, we're actually connecting with its more accurate flavor of freedom. So instead of practicing it as a burden, we are actually tasting the freedom of not being hooked in over and over again to our desires. Practicing the non-addictive mind. When I was on retreat here in February, I had the yogi job of putting away the tea things. You know, putting out tea and then putting them away. So one day I was putting away the tea and putting away the fruit. And I had already had, you know, the things I had taken from tea. So I'm putting it away. And just just in a quick, quick moment, as I'm putting the bowl of fruit away, I just take a few more grapes, you know, out of the bowl. And I'm kind of just putting it away and eating the grapes completely unmindfully. But I guess I was mindful enough to be looking furtively around to see if anybody was watching me. <laughs> and I just realized that in that moment, it was just that, you know, that just that moment of doing it, I was outside of the pasture. I had strayed outside of my gochara, <laughs> you know, of mindfulness. So it's just, it's just kind of these little things which can illuminate for us the habits of mind, these strong tendencies of mind. You know? And so we just see it and we learn from them and then come back you know, and pay attention. This section of the sutta, you know, where he says, monks, when going forward and returning, he acts clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, he acts clearly knowing. And then all all the rest of the activities mentioned, also highlights the emphasis the Buddha placed on monks and nuns, because in the sutta he was addressing them, but it's really to us as well. The emphasis he places on the monks and nuns deporting themselves in a quiet and dignified manner. This, this is the implication of this clear comprehension, you know, clearly knowing what we're doing. And this doesn't mean being stiff or being contrived. Sokni Rinpoche, he titled, he titled one of his books, Carefree Dignity. You know, and it's kind of a nice combination of words. That it's possible to have a dignity in what we do that's not tight, and contracted, it's really quite carefree. But in the West, 
just just the words or the the meaning of deportment, you know, or dignity. We hear those words and it sounds kind of old-fashioned. You know, who talks about deportment uh, these days? But what's surprising, it's a very noticeable and beautiful aspect of Buddhist cultures in Asia. I mean, for those of you who've been in these cultures, it's so striking. Just the sense of respect and grace that people have in relating to one another. And it doesn't mean that beings there are any freer of defilements than we are here. That's not the suggestion. But rather, just that way which, which is embodied or in the culture, you know, what people grow up with, they deport themselves respectfully and there's a great beauty to it. It's like even though the minds may be going through the same stuff that we go through, just that outward behavior is an acknowledgement of the value of acting, moving, living respectfully, whether we're by ourselves or with others. So all of this is contained in this section of the sutta as well. So it's clearly understanding the purpose of our actions and knowing whether it's of benefit or not. Knowing the suitability of the action, whether it's appropriate. Of staying in the proper domain, staying within the pastures of the four mindful abidings. The last aspect of clear comprehension is non-delusion. That is seeing clearly the three characteristics which we've spoken of last week. Seeing clearly the impermanence, the unsatisfying nature, dukkha, the selflessness of experience. Now, applied to these activities that are mentioned, It's really seeing clearly these three characteristics in them as we move, as we stand, as we move forward, as we're dressing, as we're eating, whatever we're doing. Seeing the three characteristics, understanding that there's no one there, there's no one behind them performing the actions. That it's really this mind-body process of empty phenomena rolling on. The 13th century famous uh, Japanese Zen master Dogen, he said, what is the way of the Buddha? It is to study the self. What is the study of the self? It is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. That's really a beautiful expression of our practice. Really, our practice is the study of self. The study of self is to forget the self, to realize the very notion of self is an illusion. And then we are enlightened by all things. All things are revealing the empty, insubstantial nature. 
So after this section in the sutta on bodily activities, the Buddha repeats the refrain, which we've talked about a lot, reminding us to contemplate these, in, these activities internally, that is our own, to contemplate them externally, mindful of the bodily activities of others, to see the nature of each of these actions arising and passing away, to see their impermanence, to establish mindfulness in them to the extent necessary for bare knowing and continuous mindfulness. This is part of the refrain that the Buddha repeats over and over again in the sutta. And then abiding independent, not clinging to anything in the world. The next instructions the Buddha gives the section in this mindfulness of the body, directing our attention to the analysis of the body's constitution through contemplating its anatomical parts. I want to read again from the sutta. Furthermore, monks, so this is after the section on the the different activities, Furthermore, monks, he reviews this very body, enclosed in skin and full of various impurities, from the soles of the feet upward and down from the crown of his head. He contemplates thus, In this body there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowels, mesentery, contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, tallow, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. This is a list of 31 parts of the body, according to Indian anatomy at that time. In some lists there are 32 parts, in some lists there are 36 parts, and in one sutta ends and whatever other parts there may be. So we don't want to get too hung up on the anatomy, but it's really the way of saying the Buddha is instructing us, really look at the body in this way. You know, and the list starts with the things that are most obvious to our awareness. You know, hair of the body, hair of the head, nails, teeth, flesh. So that's very obvious, and it goes all the way down to the most inner organs and fluids. And in some of the lists, it ends up really contemplating the skeleton of the body. So the question might arise, and it has arisen, maybe not in you, but certainly as people hear about this uh, contemplation, why did the Buddha teach, and why would we want to contemplate these asubha, that's the Pali word, for the non-beautiful or unattractive aspects of the body. Now this practice, these asubha practices, contemplating the unattractive, unbeautiful parts of the body, are commonly done in the monasteries in Asia. It has many benefits 
and also some dangers. This contemplation has to be done carefully. The most obvious benefit is that when we contemplate the body in this way, when we really look to see and understand, it weakens our attachment to our own bodies and weakens the lust we have for the bodies of others. You know, you might picture an autopsy. I don't know if you've ever seen one or read about them, you know, where they kind of slid open uh, the front of the body and and there it is. It's just exposed in all its organs and everything that's in there. Or as I've mentioned in different talks, you know, a friend who had laparoscopic surgery to remove a, a fibroid tumor, you know, it's done through a, a miniaturized video camera. And so at the end of the surgery, the friend got the video. And so I was really interested in seeing it. She didn't have any interest at all. But it was fascinating because you were on the inside of the body, you know, and you could see all the organs and the blood and the tumor and the very different picture. We're not so likely to be identified with the liver or the stomach or the small intestines. You know, when we see that, oh yeah, that's me. I'm the liver. I'm the small intestine. No, we see it just as impersonal organs. It's somehow, when it's all nicely wrapped up in skin, not only do we identify with it, but we have this great lust for it. And it's really because of a superficial way of seeing. I'm editing. What we call the body, you know, what we're so familiar with in our superficial perception, and which seems so attractive and delightful from one perspective. From the perspective of the contemplation the Buddha is talking about, we see that it is really just a collection or a relationship of different parts, none of which in themselves are particularly lust-inspiring. You know, when we really see things as they are, And as we contemplate this both internally and externally, when we understand our own bodies this way, when we understand the bodies of others in this way, we also see more and more clearly the impermanent, contingent nature of each of these parts of the body. And we see the interdependent nature of all the systems, the nervous system and the circulatory system and the skeletal system. All of these parts are working interdependently. All of them are impermanent, subject to change. When we see this and we really reflect on it, then when some of these parts 
or systems wear out or break down. We see it's not some failure. It's not because of some failure of self or even some defect of the body. It's not that the body did something it's not supposed to do. This is the nature of the body. This is how it is. It's expressed well, I believe, in the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I know nothing (laughs) about it except perhaps (laughs) what it says, and I'm not even sure I have it that accurately. But as I understand it, it says, and those of you who are scientifically minded can tell me tomorrow if it's (laughs) incorrect, but my understanding of it is that all systems tend to disorder. that ordered systems left to themselves without an infusion of energy tend to disorder. This is the nature of the world, of the universe. It's the nature of our bodies. What's so surprising is how hard it can be for us to accept this. To accept this truth of how things are even in the face of overwhelming evidence. You know, we see it all around us, but somehow it's very hard to accept that this is the truth of things. And it's precisely this particular contemplation which is a reminder of this. It reminds us of what constitutes what we are calling bodies, what we are calling my bodies. It reminds us of the nature of the bodies of others, you know, that we may be enraptured by. It's really a very powerful practice, even if it's just done as a short reflection each day, you know, even if it's not your main practice, as, as it is for some, for some people. But even just as a short reflection each day to go through these 31, 32, 36 parts of the body, however you, however you visualize it, it really helps to decondition pride and lust. It helps to decondition fear. Because we see with greater clarity just what the body actually is. But there is also a danger in this. And the danger was manifest even in the time of the Buddha. Because we can undertake it with a wrong attitude. And instead of this contemplation of the non-beautiful, the unattractive aspects of the body leading to a calming of sense desire, leading to greater non-attachment, to freedom, If we do it with the wrong attitude, it can just fill the mind with disgust and aversion, you know, kind of repugnance. And it's said that a whole group of monks in the Buddha's times did this practice with such verve, you know, and they got so filled with disgust for their body that they committed suicide. You know, then the Buddha came to know of this and they weren't doing that correctly. (laughs) You know, it's not the purpose. So although we probably won't go that far, it's still helpful to recognize 
the strong tendencies we might have in our minds in that direction. So I'll just give you an example. Quite a few years ago, the Cambodian monk, Mahagosananda, uh, who was this totally loving, sweet monk, and he just kind of radiates light uh, in the most humble, beautiful way. So he came, it was during the three-month course, he visited, and he led all the yogis just in this very simple exercise of visualizing the whole process of taking food. You know, of taking the food and then chewing it and visualizing what happens to it, you know, as it's in your mouth and as it breaks down, and then as it goes down into the stomach and what happens to it and as it goes through the whole process of elimination. So he led it in a very detailed way. And there were quite a few yogis afterwards who said, why does he have so much aversion to eating? You know, why does he have so much aversion to food? And that was just their own projection you know, of repugnance or aversion to the non-beautiful. Gosananda was no aversion at all. He was just leading people through what happens. This is how it is. You know? And so we have these tendencies in the mind to shrink back from the unbeautiful or the unattractive out of aversion. And the practice is to free our minds from that side as well. So it's to free ourselves from attachment and also to free our minds from aversion. And the Buddha pointed to this very clearly in the last part of this section of the sutta, which I'll read. You know, he goes through the 31, 32 parts And then he says, Just as though there were a bag with an opening at both ends, full of many sorts of grain, such as hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, and white rice, and a person with good eyes were to open it and review it thus, this is hill rice, this is red rice, these are beans, these are peas, this is millet, this is white rice, so too he reviews the same body up from the soles of the feet and downward from the crown of the head. In this body there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, flesh, and it goes through the list. It's just seeing things as they are. There is tremendous power in that. This balanced contemplation of the non-beautiful aspects of the body, which the Buddha is pointing to in this part of the sutta, has the power to lead all the way to full awakening. Many people practice just this. We can almost imagine that really happening, of really awakening as we do this, to see that there is nothing in this body to hold on to, nothing to claim as I or mine. And then the mind in a moment, or gradually over time, the possibility of just relinquishing all grasping. And in that moment of relinquishing, being free. 
the Buddha said, bhikkhus, in clinging, one is bound by Mara. By non-clinging, one is freed. This is our practice. And really, the Satipatthana Sutta, in all of these different sections, the Buddha is just giving us instructions of how actually to accomplish this. In clinging, one is bound by Mara. By not clinging, one is freed. Let's sit for a minute or two. Change the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through my goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father,
This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Forest Refuge on June 14, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.